of Romans in your Bibles if you have them. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, there's some right back there on that table. Just sneak back there while all those kids are going and grab yourself one. They're there for you to use. The other night at Bible study, we were talking about the merits of uh, visiting Israel and how valuable that is to really understanding the Bible, of actually seeing the Holy Land where the events all took place. And I've never been, but I would uh, very much like to go someday. And I think the reason I haven't been is that Israel's too far away. I mean, the money and the time it would take to go and see it properly has just not come together for us yet, and it's, uh, it's just too far away. Now, if I lived in Jordan or Syria or someplace like that, or even maybe Europe, I'd slip over there and make sure I got to visit it by now, but uh, probably many times. But in fact, there's just lots of places I'd like to go that are just too far away, you know? And uh, maybe the distance dampens my enthusiasm to just make it happen and go. And you know, I think some people have that attitude about spiritual things in terms of getting there to a destination. Heaven is too far away or uh, seems so distant. I'll just worry about my travel arrangements later, when I'm older, when I have more time, when I'm too old to play on Sundays or whatever the thing might be. In fact, it seems to be quite a task to get there at all. So I don't know, it just seems like such a burden. And I'm just not really in the mood to go that far. Now some people, the more energetic type of people, they, they go places, they, they get their travel arrangements, they pour themselves into making travel arrangements. So they would think like, let's see, now heaven, Let's see, I'll need this level of uh, church attendance and I'll need to obey at least oh, this many commandments and uh, I'd better get a Bible and uh, say some prayers and tithe my money to something. And yes, the, uh, you know, the enthusiastic, energetic, religious person is, is building an account by which he hopes God will be impressed and owe him an entry ticket into that distant country called heaven. But those less energetic types, people more like me or people that just like sin... They see heaven as so distant, they're just going to wait. They're just going to wait. No need to invest yet. Plenty of time. We'll get there one of these days. In fact, they think, we'll just kind of live as we want and figure that we'll leave it up to the powers that be to kind of give us a little wink there at the end and open the doors and let us in at the last minute. After all, I'm not really all that bad, am I? And if he sends me to hell, well, at least all my buddies will be there because they're just as crummy as I am, so we'll have good fellowship over the coals and whatever. Both of those types of people, the religious enthusiast and the lazy sinner, are operating on a wrong premise. They're both in error, and they are both focusing on the wrong thing. The error is that heaven is something that is achieved by either human effort or some kind of luck. And the wrong focus is on heaven as a distant place. That's the wrong way to look at it. Heaven may seem far away, distance-wise and time-wise, if you're young and healthy, but the reality is that salvation, the guarantor of your arrival there, is very, very near. That surety, that ticket to heaven, the guaranteed entrance, is not far away. It's nearby. So let's think about our two characters once again. The first is something like the first century Jew, laboring under the assumption that he can win God's approval by paying meticulous attention to religious duty. And the second fellow, who finds it all just too far off and too mysterious to really bother with, is something like the first century typical Gentile, 
You live, you die, and the rest is sort of beyond me. So I'll find out when I get there. Well, the text we've been looking at, Romans chapters 9 through 11, mostly uh, is concerned with the first fellow, the Jew. Last week, we were able to identify his problem and God's solution. His problem in chapter 10, verse 3 is, Paul says, knowing about God's righteousness, and you have to have righteousness to get to heaven, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. He knows that salvation is based on righteousness, but he's trying to establish his own righteousness. That is, rather than taking the situation as it is, he's trying to bend it to fit his own notions. And he'd, I think I'd have to say prideful notions. He thinks that by minute regulation, he can please God and earn his place in heaven by Abraham's side. That's what the first century Jew is thinking. As Paul explains in chapter 9, verse 31, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. And then verse 32 of chapter 9, he says, Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Their unbelief kept them from accepting God's way, from accepting the righteousness that God provided. And they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They hoped to work their way into God's favor by law-keeping and setting up their own righteousness. And by doing this, Romans 10.3 says, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Here God gives this great offer, and they don't want it. They're not going to put themselves under that. God provided righteousness for salvation, but they didn't want what God provided. That is, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, and with Him goes God's righteousness his sacrifice, and any hope of finding salvation. That's why in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says his heart's desire and his prayers are for their salvation because they are hopelessly on the wrong track. They need God's righteousness, but they want to stick to their own. They're missing out. Well, why is Christ important? Well, like we talked about last week, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is what the law is all about. He is the destination of the law. He is its goal. Everything in the law points to him, and in every way he fulfilled it. Its righteous demands he perfectly kept. Its symbols and rituals and imagery explain his sacrificial work. All of its sacrifices shed light on his true sacrifice. So the law, as we said last time, is a map. It's a guide. It's a vehicle to bring men to a place, to a person, to Christ. As Paul says in Galatians, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Being a child of God comes through the Son of God, not the signs that point to Him. The Jews were so committed to cling to the road map, they never got to the destination. They just treasured the map and looked at the map and held the map and 
detailed the map and glorified the map and put all kinds of extra symbols on the map and, and, uh, and put it in a glass case and all kinds of wonderful things. And they never went where it was telling them to go. And so God brought the reality to them, to their very presence. And they didn't recognize it. They didn't want it because the map was so important. So again, chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. That very thing we need, righteousness, is what he provided. And who does he provide it for? To everyone who believes. Paul is setting up this contrast in chapter 10, verse 4. In, chapters, in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 10, you have the Jews who have zeal, he says. They have zeal. They have this desire to establish their own righteousness through law-keeping and works. Chapter 9, verse 32. They're not subjecting themselves to the righteousness of God. But in verse 4, you have faith, the end of the law, and God's righteousness. See, there's a big contrast there. Zeal, establishing my own righteousness, not subjecting myself to the righteousness of God, or, on the other hand, faith, God's righteousness, and the end of the law. Man's way versus God's way. Man's way of, is self-focused. It's, it's uh, meritorious. It is achievement by me kind of thinking. God's way is focused on God received in humility and faith and it's an achievement of God. In verse 5 and 6 we see the contrast expanded and explained. Verse 5 of chapter 10 the first kind of righteousness you see is law righteousness. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. And he's basically quoting or alluding to Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 which says if you're going to base your life on the law you're going to live it. And the point Paul is making is really clear. If you are counting on living God's law to find approval from God you're going to be measured by it. You really have to keep it, all of it, all the time. And that's an incredible commitment. There's this distant goal, legal perfection, far away from us, far ahead of us. And at the end of your life, it's called salvation. That's the way they're thinking. Being welcomed into God's presence. And to get there, you have to successfully overcome every sinful inclination, avoid any and every breach of integrity, every unlawful passion has to be mastered, every aspect of cruelty and anger and hostility has to be kept in check, every impious act and every failure in religious observance can't be allowed. You must be, for all intents, a perfect individual. For true righteousness is conformity to the law of God. And that's what it expects of you. And if that's the way you're going to approach God and you want Him to judge you, you're going to be measured by that standard of His law. What's the problem with that? Well, there's no problem with it if you can do it. But nobody can do it. That's the problem. This path must end in self-deception and pride because only a fool believes he can do that. You have to deceive yourself profoundly 
to think that you can earn God's favor by your righteous acts. If you are so clueless about your own wickedness that you think that's going to work, you're in a lot of trouble. But there are a lot of clueless people. Religious people. Only one man has ever lived God's law, and that is Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law in absolutely every way. And here's the secret. When we have him... In fact, the New Testament uses a wonderful term over and over and over again. In him. When we are in him and belong to him, we find ourselves welcome in Christ. As God welcomes Christ, we are in him, he welcomes us. And that's how we find our welcome on that great day. How do we have him? How do we belong to him? How do we get in him? Paul says over and over again, by faith. And that is how. That is God's means, his chosen means of union with Christ, to trust in him. You know, early on in Romans, we read this incredible truth. Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified, may write with God, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he makes that very clear. By faith without any reference to the works of the law. Faith is God's way and faith only. Well, you know what? Faith as a means of salvation is as near to you as your own heart is. And that's what we're talking about here. In verse 6, faith is um, actually given a voice to speak. So we've talked about the righteousness that is based on the law in verse 5. Verse 6 says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks. This is what it's saying. And he quotes from the Old Testament. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does faith say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with which we are preaching. Now notice in verse 6, it is the righteousness based on faith that is speaking. In verse 5, we saw the righteousness which is based on law. Those are two completely opposite ways of trying to approach God. Two completely different ways of obtaining righteousness. One, keep the whole law. Two, put your faith in Christ and receive his righteousness. You can't do both. You can only do one or neither. Verses 6 and 7 are a little bit difficult, but the point is to draw out this idea of nearness, the nearness of salvation, of the righteousness based on faith. And Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, again, supporting his points from the Old Testament like he's done all the way along here. Now, these little quotations from Deuteronomy get kind of interesting because... Honestly, at first glance, they don't seem to be saying very much that's different from what Paul is saying in verse 5 uh, from Leviticus. But there is a real difference. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 30 so we can see it there. You can stick something in here in Romans. We'll come back. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Way back there. Deuteronomy is the book Moses wrote just before the Israelites were about to enter the promised land. In fact, he died right after he wrote this book. They had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. The whole generation that had passed through the Red Sea had died out. And it was a new 
young, vibrant people ready to conquer the land under Joshua that are now being exposed to the final words of Moses. All the experiences of the Exodus generation had been recorded in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, including the giving of God's law and all of its details and everything about that. This is a new generation. Those people are all dead, except for two of them. But Deuteronomy is a restating of the law for the new generation. In fact, that's what the word Deuteronomy means. Deutero is two, right? Namas is law, second law. It's just a rehash of the whole law as it's already been given in the previous books, but with an emphasis on a relationship with God. It's quite fascinating. Perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Deuteronomy has the flavor of the New Testament. And maybe that's because it puts so much emphasis on love and grace. The Lord Jesus often quoted from Deuteronomy. In fact, you know, when he was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, Lord, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Where did, where did he go? Deuteronomy. He didn't go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus. He went to Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're really right at the end. And Paul finds the righteousness based on faith speaking here. But we must think carefully because the words faith and righteousness don't appear here. But Deuteronomy 30 is not written just for the generation of Moses' day. By the time you get here, which is right at the end of what Moses wants to say, it is written for future generations. He's looking ahead. And in this portion of Deuteronomy, it's really a ratification of God's covenant. He has offered, right up until this point, if you go back to chapter 28 and chapter 29 and look at it, he's telling them what's going to happen to them if they don't serve him. He says, if you don't serve me, all these curses are going to come upon you. And he gives this whole list. If you do serve me, all these blessings are going to come, come upon you. And he gives this whole big list. And then chapter 30 begins in the prophetic knowledge that they're going to fail. You know, what's so interesting, we were talking about this Wednesday night in the Bible study. It's so interesting. Every part of the Old Testament tells you what's going to happen in the next part of the Old Testament prophetically. There's no surprises. And he tells them right now, this is what's going to happen after you fail. Fail to keep the law. They will experience the blessings and the cursings as they go through their history, which God tells them in chapter 29 will include, the cursings will include dispersion and captivity into other lands. So verse uh, 1 of chapter 30 says, So it shall be, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord has God, God has banished you. Now he's talking to people that haven't even started yet. And he's saying in the distant future, many generations from now, when you're scattered around the world for, because you've been judged by God, you're going to remember what's being said today. Your descendants will. Verse 2. And um, you call to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you. Verse 2. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul. According to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more 
than your fathers. That sounds like a promise. And it is. It's, a, it's again, it's a restatement of the guarantee that God gave to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. No matter what they do, God will hunt them down, if you will, and bring them home and bless them ultimately by his own grace. Verse 6 uses the language of the new covenant, which points to Jesus. And uh, what follows verse 6 points to the time of the second coming. Moreover, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Where have you heard those words before? The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. What does that sound like? It sounds like the new covenant promise in Jeremiah, doesn't it? It's exactly what he says. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to write my law in your heart. I'm going to do this. It's going to be an act of God's grace. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of your ground for the Lord will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Notice the emphasis on heart and soul, turning to God, loving God with heart and soul. And again, back to verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love him. That's the new birth. That's faith. Faith, what is faith except the apprehending and trusting in the true and living God as he has revealed himself? And that's what Moses is describing. This isn't religion and ritual and minute, minute, you know, these little regulations and being uh, emphasized here, but a heart. That's what he's talking about, isn't it? The heart that loves God, that is wholly his, that delights in him. You can be very religious and have no idea what he's talking about here. And many people are. They can even be scrupulously, fanatically religious in activity, but their hearts are just as much in this world and self-focused as that casual pagan sinner who doesn't bother. And what God says through Moses, just as Paul has taught in Romans, is that God will achieve this salvation as a gift of grace. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God. It's something granted by divine favor. Have you ever felt your heart just open to God, suddenly aware of how wonderful he is? Have you ever felt that? awed by his holiness and, and touched and moved by his love and you find yourself drawn to him, heart and soul. If you ever had that experience, that's his doing. That is the touch of God in your life. Now, in verse 11, we find, of, we're still in Deuteronomy 30, we find the words that Paul quotes and applies in Romans chapter 10. For this commandment which I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth 
and in your heart that you may observe it. You see? What's he saying? It's not far away. That's what he's saying. It's close. What God wants from you is one step away. And that is genuine faith, a heart that is his. Give yourself to him, body and soul, today and forever. That's all he's asking. Let's go back to Romans chapter 10. Now look once more at verse 6 through 8, and you can see how Paul integrates these ideas into his current discussion of salvation by faith. Verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? And then he offers sort of commentary on that. He says, That is to bring Christ down. And do not, Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Deuteronomy 30.14, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, Paul says. Just as in Deuteronomy, he wants to, to, he wants to remove from us the idea that a vital and eternal relationship with God is something that is far away. It's not. It's something that's near. It's something to strive for right now, today, to, to embrace. It's not something that you strive your life long to reach some religious observances. You've got to go through this whole big thing. You don't have to go far into heaven for it because Christ came down from heaven for us. You don't have to go into Hades, deep into the earth for it. Christ rose from the dead to bring new life to us. You see what he's saying? God's done it. God's done it. God has done all that needs to be done. He fulfilled the law. He joined deity with humanity. He conquered death and rose from the dead. And last week, you know, we said there were, in the end, only two kinds of religion in the world, and it's true. There's the religion of human achievement, and there's the religion of divine accomplishment. And only Christianity falls, biblical Christianity, falls into that latter category. Everything else is trying to struggle or find or be enlightened or work some way to God. Every religion but one teaches salvation or enlightenment by human achievements, but only biblical Christianity teaches salvation by divine accomplishment. Now, all that's left to say, then, is what? Yes. To say yes to him. Verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. What is the word that lies so near? The word of faith. And what does that word, just a step away, what does that promise us? Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You know, salvation is such a paradoxical thing in some ways because it requires so little and at the same time it requires so much. The little is, is simple faith that's so near. But faith is your whole heart, isn't it? It's everything. And giving God you today is so much more than a lifetime of ritual and law-keeping while holding back your heart. You can do all this activity and spend your life in it and die doing it. Torment yourself, flare yourself, 
crawl on your knees thousands of miles on hard concrete with spikes and all that and, and not get anywhere because your heart isn't His. And it's much more to give all of your heart to Him in one simple act of faith forever than to do all that stuff. It's more than that. It's so little, but it's so much. That's the difference between God's righteousness and our righteousness. When God grants us His righteousness, we become consumed with Him. We are gifted with wonder at Him and delight in Him and we have a holy fear of Him and we're changed forever. When we seek to establish our own righteousness, we become consumed with the process and we lose sight of Him and we only get further and further behind after all, right? Because you can do all these deeds to make up for last year's sin, but what are you going to do about today's sin? Or the three sins you committed today, or the ten sins, or, or whatever. I'm still working on the ones I committed last week. Well, you know, I, I just committed another one. You only get farther behind. And that causes us to have idolatrous thoughts. Because then we have to start changing who God is to accommodate our, ourselves to Him. Well, I'm in the process, and it's got to work, so he must not be who he says he is. It's different. So I start thinking different about him. And I change him to fit my own religious ideas. And that becomes idolatry. Modern people do the same thing. They seek to establish their own righteousness. Now, a few do it by zealous religious activity, but that's not the thing these days. That's not the spirit of our time. We would rather feel our way along the path. We don't need God's opinion. I mean, we're willing to get input from him, of course, you know. It's not that we're against him or anything. But he should not expect us to regard him as some kind of God. After all, he's only an infinitely wise and powerful being who has no limitations. While we are the products of an enlightened scientific culture with several decades behind us of kicking our own ideas around. So, you know. And we fully expect that he will approve of us because we've been so carefully taught to approve of ourselves. That's not faith. And that mentality will bring us up really short with a firm grip on absolutely nothing. Faith is taking God as he is, the real God, the living God, and accepting what he has done. Verse 9 uses a really important word in the New Testament. It says that if you confess, I confess! What does that make you think of? Like sitting behind a table with a hot lamp on you, you know? The Greek word for confess is, has a different sense than our word, although our word means the same thing. Homo logos. Homo is the same. Logia is like saying, a saying or words, saying the same. To confess is to say the same thing. That's what it means. To agree. To confess means to agree with God. It means to say yes to Him. Well, what do I have to agree with Him about? Whatever He says. What does God say about you? Agree with Him. What does God say about Christ? Agree with Him. What does God say about salvation? Agree with Him. What does God say about righteousness? Agree with Him. 
To confess your sin is to agree with his view of your sin. See, this is not confessing sin. Let me give you an example. Lord, yesterday I, I um, <clears throat> said a cruel thing to my wife. And it was wrong, but, you know, she came out with this attitude thing, and, you know, it really, it wasn't that bad because, you know, she actually kind of deserved that. that. See, that's not confessing because that's not seeing my sin in the same way that God sees it. He sees our sin as utterly wretched and filthy and vile and cancerous, moral cancer. And we see it as foibles and mistakes. And I love it when like politicians commit sins and they call them mistakes. I, I think that's really interesting. But we do the same thing. You know, that was a mistake. I apologize for that mistake. I apologize for that mistake. And, and we find other words to use, you know. That's exactly, uh, that's not confession. To confess the Lord is to agree with God's revelation of himself. All that he is. All of his righteousness. All of his words. So salvation comes when, quote, you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Now that doesn't mean to say, Jesus as Lord. How could I'm saying? Anybody can do that. That means you publicly agree with God. And, Paul says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now you can't just say those words. It has to be true inside, obviously. Believe in your heart. Verse 10 explains, then, reversing the order. For with the heart... Man believes, there's the insert kernel, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, agrees publicly, resulting in salvation. Righteousness, God's righteousness, as Paul has explained all along in this book, comes to us by faith. Faith plus nothing, faith alone. And our confession seals it. That's so simple. Some people say, that's too simple. No, not too simple, because it involves... True humility before God. Letting go of our own ideas and our own notions and our own pride and our own puny efforts. And it's a total surrender to an offended Lord who loves us anyway. And that's a hard thing to do. In fact, you can only do it by His grace. It's so difficult that it takes a special work of grace to bring us to the point where we're willing to do that. Because everything in us cries against it. Are you there? Can you let yourself drop all of those things keeping you from salvation? It's so near, he's saying, you see. It's a, it's a breath away, literally. It's so near. It's already right in your mouth and it's in your heart. It's right there. Will you agree with him this morning? Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe that his death and resurrection is your only hope for life, and you're there. Pray with me, would you? Our great God and Father, we confess, I confess that my sins are too deep to overcome. I confess to failing you a thousand, ten thousand ways. I confess to needing a Savior. Lord, I agree that I need the Savior you have provided. I need Jesus Christ. I confess that he's the Lord of all things. The eternal God become man. The only Savior of men. And Lord, I receive my Lord and my Savior.
to the praise of his great glory. Amen.